0: Here are three existential questions for you when it comes to business. Where do you want to be professionally? How can you differentiate yourself from the crowd? And how do you make money according to what you're worth? Let's talk with an expert, someone who has written best-selling books addressing each of these three questions in turn and has built a prosperous business herself following some very practical steps. Coming up is my conversation with author, speaker, coach, and entrepreneur, Dory clark
1: welcome to the manager message podcast where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same here is your host consultant professional speaker and author jim carr
0: Come on in. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I typically like to take this moment to not only introduce a guest, but also let you in on why I invited said guest into our conversation. Now, the easy answers for Dory Clark would be that first, she's a valuable mentor of mine. I know how good and practical her advice is. Or I could just say, Dory is very well known and a lot of people will want to join us. But Dory, if it's okay with you, In lieu of the traditional bio, I would like to share a story, if that's okay. Oh my goodness, do it, Jim. Okay. Well, this is a true story. A few months ago, I was a guest on a podcast called The Shrimp Tank. We recorded in studio. There were two co-hosts and a producer, a young man in his early 20s. Now, part of their format is to let this young producer ask the guest a question or two. So kind of presenting this millennial or post-millennial view. Now, I didn't know any of the questions in advance. And so when it came time, that young producer asked me, is there someone that my generation should be reading or listening to or that I could talk to, to learn about being an entrepreneur? I had to take a deep breath for a moment and get past the my generation part. But immediately, Dory Clark came to mind. And so when he asked me why, I explained Look, over the course of three best-selling books, Dory, you have set out in very practical ways, charting one's professional path or new path. That's a book called Reinventing You, how to differentiate yourself from the crowd and get noticed. That book is Stand Out, and then how to develop multiple streams of income from your expertise. That's Dory's latest book, Entrepreneurial You. Now, what I didn't say then, but absolutely must mention here is that Dory is also an adjunct faculty member at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, which is where I somehow received my MBA and uh, for whom I now serve as an ambassador. Uh, I'm based in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, everyone. And so, uh, Dory, I want you to know and everyone at the Fuqua School to know I have Arkansas locked down. Uh, as a uh, as a recruiting base for the Fuqua School,
2: I bet you do, Jim. They just they just <laughs> set you loose and you uh, you bundle it all up. I love it.
0: That's right. Don't worry about my turf. Today, Dory is a uh, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. She's a guest on leading podcasts, obviously. And uh, at the time she wrote, entrepreneurial you had, I think seven different streams of income. Dory, is it still seven or have you expanded even more? It's nine now. That's remarkable. We can break that down a bit as we go, but just know that the kinds of guidance that Dory can offer is based not only on her conversations with others, but things that she has successfully done herself, and not always perfectly because none of us are perfect at it, but it's a a remarkable track record here over the last few years. Dory, I thought I would start here. There's a particular word that is very popular with entrepreneurs, uh, with business people who might be charting a new course for themselves. We hear it all the time. People use the word passion. What do you think are the good parts about people being passionate about something they think they want to pursue? And from your standpoint, do you see any traps? when people run off after what they think is their passion?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's an important question, Jim. I think obviously the, the good part is that we all want to be spending our time doing things we like. I mean, that's a pretty, a pretty human impulse. It's uh, certainly far better to enjoy your work than not. And if you are able to spend your time on something you're really passionate about, you are You're going to spend more time at it. You're going to go further because it feels like a treat. It feels like a pleasure to do it rather than something onerous. So there's a lot of great things about aligning your work and your passion the downside is that sometimes if you are chasing your passion single-mindedly you lose sight of the other part of the equation which is frankly just as important which is what do other people care about it can't it can't just all be about you and what you want to do there's a there's a buyer on the other side of that equation and are they interested in what you are selling so as long as you're able to, to keep those two pieces in alignment and actually be passionate about something that other people People are interested in, or funnel your passion into a form that will help other people, then you are golden. But the the problem that a lot of people fall into is that they try to shoehorn it, and just because they want to, you know, they want to knit scarves, they assume the whole world needs to buy scarves, and uh, they get indignant if uh, if that doesn't happen. We have to be just a, a little bit smarter about that, and if we are, then you can
0: reap huge rewards. The world doesn't necessarily respond to our education process, does it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: Now, from your standpoint, you didn't just wake up one day and having sold a business or decided to leave a comfortable job and decide that your passion uh, was to become a best selling author and speaker and all of that. You were dealt some cards along the way. So uh, you were a, a journalist, a trained journalist, and then got laid off as the newspaper industry was contracting. You were a political spokesperson. And uh, as I recall, you were out of a job when your candidate lost.
2: Candidates, Jim, actually, because they kept losing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So necessity, at least to some degree, was the mother of your reinvention. Uh, Did you have a point at which this future vision became clear to you?
2: You know, I... I Am definitely a, a planner, and I like uh, I like projecting and, and planning out uh, as best I can. But the the truth is, I've never been very good at having a long term plan. I think I think, frankly, if we're honest. Most of us probably aren't, or maybe even shouldn't be, because circumstances are are changing so rapidly. I mean, you know, we we all see the stories about uh, about robotics and AI and disruptions and things like that. And if your business is trying to project ten years out, it's it's probably going to be wildly inaccurate based on technological changes that we can't necessarily predict the ramifications of. And certainly, the, a similar thing is uh, is. True in our own lives, you know, you might meet someone, you might get married, you might move across the country, you might have kids. Things are going to look pretty different. So I certainly didn't have uh, a long-range vision that I was marching toward. However, what I was good at was coming up with a plan for the next year. And I think if we can, if we can do that, you know, put one foot in front of the other, and just have an idea of what the what the next milestone is, at which we can then stick our heads up and look around and reevaluate, then I think that can be a a path forward that gives us more options and at least moves us in the direction of where we want to be heading.
0: It makes a lot of sense. In my own work, I will hear people a lot lament their perceived weakness in organization or planning or the like. However, there's one area where I find that professionals, very good professionals, really go into a clinch when they start thinking about the best ways to talk about their business and and helping other people share the message. They'll tell me something like, hey, you know, Jim, this all sounds great. I kind of know what I ought to be saying, but this entrepreneur stuff and this reinvention stuff sounds like a game for extroverts. And I'm just not that person. Dory, you are not a natural extrovert, right? Yeah. How did you manage to play to your strengths and become not only known, but to having built now a pretty substantial community around your ideas.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think that we have a lot more leeway in shaping the shaping the discourse, shape, shaping the circumstances than we might imagine. Sometimes people look at the, the so-called standard form of networking is you know going to these big events and just plunging into a crowd and if they find that uncomfortable or distasteful they just say oh well you know that's that's not meant for me then I just I just won't do networking I don't like networking uh, but that is uh, pretty short-sighted because it's it's only one form of networking I think for most introverts I mean, you know, people like friends, people like hanging out with their friends or, or, you know, having these kind of low key situations. And we just need to make networking more like that. And so the things that I have done, uh, first of all, you can actually network even just not in person. You can network through your writing, through your content creation. That is a way of making people know who you are and know your ideas, which is just as good, if not better than going to some cattle call event. Uh, so for instance, a form of networking, and this is something that I've done a lot, could be writing an article and then asking if you can interview someone. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And you can often turn them into friends or professional colleagues. Another is to organize your own events and to, uh, to ask people, you know, hey, would you like to get together? And you could organize, you know, a, a small, more intimate gathering that feels more comfortable to you and, uh, and really plays to your strengths in the situation.
0: I'm reminded, Dory, uh, Michael Port, who's someone you know well and I- I've heard. Michael is the author of Book Yourself Solid. He has a podcast called Steal the Show and a book and all that. He talks a lot about performance. And one piece of advice he gave was always have something to invite people to. And that's a great idea. As you said, that inviting could be to something you've written or something you've created that's ready-made. Or it could be an event, or it could be just a, a, a dinner, uh, or something of connecting them to other people that they might find interesting. So it seems there are ways again that you can play to your strengths. If you're not a natural backslapper or a natural extrovert, and most of us are not, there's still ways to build that network without networking.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Michael kind of took it to an extreme because he uh, he bought a boat and, <laughs> and then has all these parties on his boat. <laughs> which is uh, which is a pretty great way to do it. Of course, you know he loves uh, he he loves boating. So if you if you want to if you want to have some tax deductible boating, that's actually a fantastic way of doing it. But yeah, in in my case, I uh, I in fact I'm I'm having one tonight here in New York City. I will often have uh, dinner gatherings, and I try to do maybe one or two a month, and that way if people reach out and they want to get together with me, I do have something that I can invite them to because it would take it would take forever. It would take way too long to have one-on-one coffees with everybody that would like to see me or that I would like to see. Instead, I can funnel them into a, uh, a group gathering and uh, and everybody's better off. It takes less time for me, but I get to see more people and they also get to, to meet other interesting people as well.
0: And, and that's fun. And you get to orchestrate something without the pressure having to be on you to be necessarily the life of the party. Exactly. Interesting. Uh, and by the way, message managers, this is not licensed for everyone to email Michael Port and uh, ask uh, when his next boat party is going to be. Uh, <laughs> it myself. Dory, let's talk a bit. Given your background as a journalist and being a prolific writer yourself, a little bit about the power of language and stories for business people in their day-to-day business lives. How do you see professionals, uh, especially those of us in the audience that aren't necessarily trained journalists or view ourselves as wordsmiths? uh, You talk a lot about areas of building credibility, of demonstrating social proof. Are there particular words, stories and things that can help people to to use the right the right words to stand out.
2: Yeah, I'm actually a really big fan of story banks, meaning making a conscious effort for you personally or your company to collect Anecdotes and write them down, you know, log them and write them down that illustrate certain key points that you want to have. So, for instance, let's say whatever your company does, you have three products or three, you know, three services that you provide. If you can have let's say, three stories that you kind of keep in rotation. You know, I mean, more is better because they can be as targeted as possible. But let's say, for starters, you have three stories about each of those three service lines. That's that's actually amazing because it does a couple of things. One is it enables you, when you're talking to prospective customers or the media or whomever, to... Just get a better sense of what you do. People remember stories a lot more. You might say, "Oh, I do," you know, integrated network, blah blah blah, and you know they're not going to get it. But if you tell a story about a successful engagement with a client, it makes a lot more sense and sticks with them. Second, it enables you, frankly, to sell without selling because nobody perceives it as, "Oh, he's making a sales pitch" when you're telling a story about somebody that you've helped. But if you tell that story, it's actually a very powerful. Powerful way to get the person listening to say in their own head, "Oh, I, I'm I'm like that person. I could probably use that service as well." And so they're they're basically making the sale for themselves. So there's there's really a lot of virtue to it.
0: Interesting, and um, I'd like to just amend that with your thoughts as well. And by the way, if your story includes world class disruptive platform. It's not an interesting story. Um, <laughs> I think that the, uh, um, the stories, and, and a number of people will kind of think, well, we're really not that interesting. Well, don't make those stories about yourself. You can make it about a customer or something that was uh, an unusual situation that you uh, helped a customer or client through or someone who had a very interesting background or a particular challenge or opportunity. So you can really talk about someone else and their path and maybe how you help them along the way—that becomes the type of thing that people might naturally talk about around a, uh, a dinner table or a campfire, anyway, right?
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: So those are some great areas in terms of keeping track of stories and uh, and finding ways to naturally and in a conversational way talk about your business, Dory. I was when I think back to to your background as we talked about before, and the ways that most of us can kind of get into the grind of entrepreneurial life, management life, business life. I'm struck by how and you might not have even thought about it this way, but you have managed to prosper in a grind, even though that's very different from how you began professionally. So I, I would make the assumption, for example, um, when you started as a journalist, that's a world that runs according to deadlines, and, and usually fairly specific assignments. When you go into politics, that's a very specific, very predictable timeline. And it's very easy to keep score, right? It's, it's binary. You either win or you lose. But when I, I spend time with managers, uh, organizational leaders, that's a really fuzzy and uncertain world. We don't know how long things will take. Uh, we have to guess sometimes at who our real competition is. Sometimes people aren't really sure how to keep score. So a few questions for you as you've you gone along this path. In a more fuzzy and uncertain time, uh, how have you set milestones for yourself along the way? You, you mentioned about trying to go in one-year increments. Has that been something that has put some fences around a really uncertain world?
2: Yeah, in terms of setting goals for myself, Essentially, I will do planning for a year, a year ahead, and maybe a tentative plan two years out. Um, but I, I think the the biggest thing that I try to figure out for myself is what comes before what? How do I stage things so that I can get the maximum value out of them? So, for instance, in 2015, when my book Standout was released, I basically thought, you know what, I mean, obviously there's regular day-to-day things that you need to do to keep your business going, but in terms of big plans and strategies, there's really only two major goals that I'm going to focus on this year. One is having a good, strong release of my book, uh, and the second is is actually tied into it. It's leveraging the release of the book to try to grow my email list. And so those are, are the two things that I, I focused on intensely because I knew that growing my email list would enable me to do everything else that I wanted to do downstream. I was interested in online courses. I was interested in launching another book, et cetera, et cetera. But all of those things would be helped if I had a bigger audience to launch them to. And so I decided to just focus and prioritize that and so i worked and built my list up and so then the following year in 2016 i focused on creating my first online course the recognized expert course now i was interested in the idea of doing paid advertising for it you know that's this is sort of the holy grail right is if you can create a valuable online asset and then create a system, a funnel, where with paid advertising, you can get people to buy it on repeat, essentially, you know, you keep getting new customers and you bring them into the funnel. That's where your efforts, your bespoke efforts have kind of become a flywheel. That is awesome. But what I realized was I couldn't do it effectively until I had, you know, really tested the course out with my own audience. And so in 2016, I actually set a goal and I said for myself, you know what? In 2018, I think that's when I'm gonna look at paid advertising for the Recognized Expert course. So, you know, it was a little foggy, right? It's subject to change because it's a couple years out. I might have found something that would be a better use of my time. But I said, it's just, it's it's not ready yet. It's not ripe yet. There's other things I need to do first. Now, lo and behold, it's the fall of 2018. What I am going to focus on this fall is building out a paid advertising funnel for the Recognized Expert course. But it's, it's only been made possible because of the work that I've done on building and testing and vetting the course with my own community in those uh, intervening two years.
0: And it, it sounds like as you go along the way, as you say, you're looking ahead. So you're building things that in essence give you more options six months from now or a year from now rather than all your eggs necessarily in one basket. Is that right? Yes, exactly. It's interesting. And and as you were talking about the experience of launching an online course, and I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, as well as your portfolio approach. And I think this has some lessons for all of our listeners there. You now have a very full portfolio. It ranges from a lot of free stuff that's readily available through your website and is, and is out there in a lot of different publications down to the, the other extreme is you have a lot of high margin, highly tailored, whether it be coaching or strategy work and the like, and then a, a number of things in between with varying price levels, varying levels of access to you and your expertise. So what has been your approach as you've gone there? Uh, and is there a sequence that you might recommend that others follow?
2: The way that I have thought about it, Jim, is I always, in the early days, prioritized brand building over bringing in money. And to clarify, certainly you need to bring in money. <laughs> you know that's that's important to keep things going, and you know people have responsibilities and bills and things like that. But a trap that a lot of consultants or entrepreneurs uh, fall into is that they they go for the money at all costs, meaning whatever the sort of short-term sale opportunity is. That's great, you know, getting more money is not a bad thing by any stretch, but it does tend, if you have that mentality, to crowd out the necessary work that you need to do on things that do not bear fruit immediately. A podcast, a book, starting to blog, things like that, they don't bear fruit at first, and if you do it for a month, you're not going to see results. Frankly, if you do it for a year, you're probably not going to see results. It's only when you're in, you know, year two, year three, that it starts to build. It's kind of the compound interest effect. And by that time, if you if you've really applied yourself, you have built a competitive moat between yourself and other people that is very very hard for for others to surmount. By that point, it's kind of like you catch them, and you know, it's kind of too late. Uh, and it's is very surprising to other folks. And so you may not have been making as much money because instead of, instead of doing client work 95% of the time, you maybe have been doing client work 75% of the time and spending the rest of it on unpaid or poorly paid activities. But it gives you the kind of brand and platform growth that allows you then to really spring ahead of a lot of other people because you've built up a kind of renown for yourself.
0: I think about uh, your your experience with this online course and being close to the people in your community as we can talk about a little bit as well. It's a very stark contrast. There was uh, some research that was just reported in the most recent uh, issue of Harvard Business Review uh, came from Michael Porter and uh, Nitin Noria. And it was very interesting. They had 27 big company CEOs keep detailed records of how they spent their time I'm sure in reality, actually, their executive assistants were doing the hard work. They're really (laughs) close to the scheduling. But one of the findings was a stunner even to the CEOs themselves. On average, they were only spending 3% of their time with customers. So it shows, I think, on one hand, there is a natural advantage that smaller businesses and individual experts can have. And if you can talk a little bit about how to play into that natural advantage, because sometimes we think, oh, we can't compete against the big guys. And how you have managed to stay, not only build your community, but to let your community help design the ways that you actually serve them and that they pay you.
2: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I know certainly when I started my business, I was a little paranoid too, that, uh, that, you know, oh, people are going to judge you because you're, because you're small, you're like this one person shop. And you know, what, what really impresses people is if you run a huge firm or, or something like that. And what I came to realize is that, really doesn't matter at all. That's that's not on most people's radar. Um, what they want is results, and they want to work with somebody that they like and that they trust. And so I think a lot of the baggage is our own baggage about kind of professional inadequacy somehow. And getting through that is, is really necessary to be able to claim your competitive advantage. To the, the point that you make, Jim, I spend a, a lot of time interacting with people who are, for instance, in my Recognized Expert course. And uh, and one of the things that has been really uh, fantastic, we were talking earlier about building multiple income streams and, and how I had done that over time. Some of these income streams were things that I really hadn't even thought about or envisioned, but they arose organically from the efforts that I had undertaken. Sometimes you just have to listen to your customers. So for instance, I launched this online course, I had thought that far, and people began taking the course and one of the first things that they started asking for was they said, you know, they they really loved engaging with other people who were doing the course and they wanted to meet them. They thought that that it would be uh, a good community or a good way to collaborate with like-minded people. And so uh, people were, were very eager to have in-person encounters. And so I decided to do a pilot where I did a one-day workshop in person. And that was fantastic. It went really well. People loved it. And so as a result, one of the business lines that I've developed is doing periodic in-person mastermind days or mastermind retreats where, you know, let's say 10 people or so will get together and, you know, it's a paid offering. We will work together and develop uh, strategies around their business over the course of a couple of days and they'll have really intensive experiences with other professionals in a similar place. And that has become a, a great and very fun new income stream for me as well. But it, but it arose as a result of, of listening to the people who are already involved in the recognized expert course and community.
0: And you have established a uh, you established a Facebook group around this and have done a lot of things. You mentioned the email list before. At one point we spoke. You were getting close to fifty thousand people or so in your. Your email list is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And and that's happened and and accumulated and compounded over time. And so as you're talking about, and I think it's a great lesson about going through the the steps, uh, doing the work, and uh, and keeping tabs on. Sometimes, Dory, it really is as simple as asking your current customers. On the one hand, what do you like about doing business with me or doing business with us? But just asking them uh, as well as, are there other things, are there other needs or other things that sound interesting to you that we might be able to arrange for you?
2: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, I do make a regular practice of, uh, of surveying my readers.
0: On a little different note, there's, there's a lot of activity and, and you're, you're establishing more things that uh, don't require your immediate time as you go along, but it's still you. Uh, running a, a, a solopreneur type business, I'm, I'm curious. What keeps your energy up? What is it that uh, helps keep you motivated? With travel, with the various parts of your business, of coming up with new ideas, do you have some some habits or some things um, that keep your meters pegging uh, on the right side of things?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I think on the on the motivation side, I think that. It, probably for for most people it's it's a combination of necessity I, I seem to foolishly keep moving to more and more expensive cities uh, so there's uh, part of it's like oh my goodness I need to I need to really uh, b- build things up here uh, but but also more broadly you know th- th- there's a very clear desire that I have to try to make an impact um, there's a, a quote that I like a lot, uh, I believe from Abraham Lincoln, which, uh, which says whatever you are, be a good one. (laughs) And, uh, and I, I I love that, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You could be the bake, you the baker, you could be the mom, you could be the, you know, the, the business author. Um, but you want to max it out. And so I really, uh, feel like I want to, I want to see how far I can take things and and work on excelling uh, at that. In terms of the technical, you know, how I uh, keep myself energized or things like that, I, you know, as an introvert, I think it's especially important to make sure that you are conscious of what replenishes you because that is really key. And so for me I love reading and I spend quite a lot of time reading. You know, whenever I can if I'm if I'm by myself I'll read during meals, during breakfast or lunch or whatever. It's kind of easy to do that if you if you work Uh, for yourself. And so I'll often get in a couple of hours of reading per day, uh, which is, which is fantastic. And it's, it's something that really relaxes me and allows me to, uh, to recharge my, my batteries that get a little bit expended when I am socializing or socializing slash networking.
0: One thing that uh, I noticed you did not say, and I think this can be a trap for entrepreneurs and business people of all stripes, introverts, extroverts, or in the middle, like me, is you didn't mention things that were kind of around the um, outward approval of others. And I know we all react to that uh, We're as human beings, but really uh, what I was hearing is more of the sense of the satisfaction of knowing that you're doing something well, that it is um, the things that you're doing are going toward important goals that you set out for yourself, and um, in the sense that you are taking care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, physically, and, and the like.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely, Jim.
0: Final couple of things here. Um, one one thing that I like to ask our expert guests about, because this is about how people can tell their professional story, how they can encourage and equip and motivate other people to, to help share that story as well. You are a messaging expert uh, and uh, have done a lot of that on your own. Are there any particular individuals or are there any particular organizations that you think are consistently good at messaging?
2: Yeah, that's a, a great question. You know, I was just out in Silicon Valley. I just came back late last night, as a matter of fact, and one of the places that we toured was Pinterest uh, at their office in San Francisco and there was a QA with the founders Evan sharp and uh, Ben Silberman and I was actually really impressed I mean I'm I'm not a big Pinterest user I will I will admit um, there's other social platforms that I spend a lot more time on but I was very impressed with their understanding of their brand and what role they are fulfilling in the marketplace. Um, they were crystal clear and it was in an, articu- an articulation that I had not heard before. Their view basically, is that whereas other social networks are about connecting with other people or you know perhaps in some cases presenting yourself to other people, <laughs> um, <laughs> Pinterest is the place you go online to connect with yourself. They said that it's a place that people go for inspiration, you know. So a lot of people have Pinterest boards about this is the house that I want to design, or these are the hairstyles I want to have, or this is how I want my wedding to look, or you know, whatever, whatever it is. But it's a, it's essentially a, a kind of a journal of inspiration that you keep for yourself. And it was, it was so neatly and clearly defined. I was, uh, I was very impressed with their understanding and their articulation. And of course, you know, unlike a lot of their Silicon Valley brethren, they have, at least at this point, not experienced the same levels of um, scandal or opprobrium. And I think a lot of it comes from having a sense of of who they are and who they're trying to serve.
0: That's a great example. And as you were describing that, you did not report that they talked about their... um epic, disruptive, world-class uh, platform. Uh, it, was, uh, it was conversational and it was distinct from, as you say, other social media platforms. It's the kind of thing that people can readily understand when they hear it and could easily share that with someone else. Yes,
2: that's right.
0: Outstanding. Dory, now that your uh, triumvirate of books is complete and you're, you mentioned that you're looking at some other areas with the uh, recognized expert community, what are you working on now? What uh, what we expect to see from you over the next uh, twelve months or so?
2: You know, I christened two thousand eighteen, Jim, the year of optimization, and uh, and what what that means to me is that I'm not so much creating a lot of new content. Uh, I mean, certainly I'm continuing to blog for the Harvard Business Review, and I am doing some activities like. Um, you know, for instance, um, the workshop that, that we did in, in July around writing for high profile publications. But ultimately, what I want to do this year is to take the systems that are already in place and tweak them to make them as efficient and effective and as lucrative as possible, which is part of why I'm turning my focus to the paid Online funnels for for the fall around the recognized expert course and seeing seeing where that goes and where that uh, takes me. I've also spent a lot of time and thought this year on not necessarily growing my email list, although that's always that's always good and that's always a goal, but on really thinking through the narrative arc of the email list and the messages that people receive and how to make it a great experience for people who are on the list to be on it and to be receiving those messages so that hopefully they feel more connected into the community of readers and may ultimately want to, uh, to join that community by taking a
0: course. Optimization makes sense. Nine different income streams and uh, everything built over time. Dory Clark outstanding. There is only one Dory Clark, so you have to optimize that. But to the outside world and the brand, there is only one Dory Clark. How can people learn more about you and get? access to your great guidance.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Uh, probably the best way, the you know, the central location is uh, doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. I have more than 500 free articles available online that I have written for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and Entrepreneur. They're all uh, listed and available there. And for folks who, in particular, are interested in the question about how to create multiple income streams, uh, they can download my free 88-question Entrepreneurial You Self-Assessment that actually helps people think through how to develop multiple income streams in their own business, and they can get that for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur.
0: Very generous as always. Just remember, folks, when you do a self-assessment, you have to be honest. Dory, on behalf of uh, our community of message managers, thank you. And thank you to everyone for joining the podcast. You know, most of us professionals, uh, when we find something that's valuable for us in our jobs and we think will be valuable to other people, we'll share it with our colleagues and our network. So if you like what you hear as we're getting this podcast going, then uh, please do the same and share. Until next time, goodbye, message managers.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.